0: It's been called the greatest short story ever told. Renowned bands like the Rolling Stones have recorded songs about it. Famous actors like Brad Pitt and Anthony Hopkins have made movies about it. And some of history's greatest artists have depicted it. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to do some teaching in St. Petersburg, Russia. And while I was there, I got to visit the world-famous Hermitage Museum. And there in the hermitage, you'll find a painting that has been described by some art historians as the greatest picture ever painted. It's Rembrandt's picture known as the return of the prodigal son. And here in this famous painting, you see the, the lost son, the wayward prodigal. The word prodigal means wasteful. This lost son who had wasted his inheritance, squandered his, uh, his inheritance on Frugal On, on, on uh, prodigal living, he returns home to his father dressed in rags, longing for reconciliation, longing for forgiveness. And the loving father, with his arms around him, welcomes his son home. The older brother stands off to the side in self-righteous indignation, scornfully looking down on his wayward brother. It's a powerful story. Because no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what era of history you live in, all of us can find our reflection in this story. We can all relate to each of the characters in it. I want to give us some backdrop this morning to this story before we begin to dive into our exploration of it. If you recall last week as we started out into Luke chapter 15, Luke tells us that the crowds were still following Jesus. I mean, multitudes of people following. They had never heard somebody teach like Jesus before. They they had never seen somebody perform the the signs and wondrous miracles that Jesus was performing. But but more than that, they had never heard somebody convey the love of God and, and the grace of God in the way that Jesus did and so Luke tells us that it was, it was primarily sinners who were flocking around Jesus, just longing to be in his presence. And the Pharisees, the, those self-righteous Pharisees who were the, the so-called religious leaders of Israel, it was the Pharisees who, who despised Jesus because of his love for lost and sinful people. In Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, Jesus, Luke tells us that as the sinners gathered around Jesus, the Pharisees muttered to themselves, Look at this man who welcomes sinners and eats with them, has fellowship with them. That was the chief complaint of the Pharisees against Jesus. Our God is a God who welcomes sinners and embraces them in fellowship. That is our God, friends. That's who He is. And so Jesus, in response to these Pharisees, he he shares in Luke chapter 15 three of the most powerful stories ever told. Last week, we saw the first two parables that Jesus taught, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, where Jesus highlighted for us God's heart for sinful people. God loves lost and sinful people and he will go to any lengths to seek them out, to find them, to rescue them and to bring them safely home. And then as we saw last week, not only does God search out and seek lost sinners, but when he brings them home, the Bible tells us all of heaven celebrates. Jesus says, God and all of the angels rejoice at the salvation of a lost child who's returned home to their heavenly father. What an incredible picture of our God that we're given here in Luke chapter 15. And this morning, as we continue on, we're going to see the third of these parables that Jesus taught in response to the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Today, we're going to look at the parable that is often known as the, the parable of the prodigal son, the wasteful son. Sometimes it's called the parable of the lost son. I prefer to call this parable the parable of the loving father because as we're going to see this morning, it's really not the wayward son who's the main character but the central figure in this story is the loving Father who continues to bestow His grace and lavish His love on His children. It's a powerful portrait of our God, our Heavenly Father. This morning I want to read this story and after we read the story, I want to come back and I want to share some observations with us about each of these three main characters that we find within the story because each of these three characters has a lesson to teach us that we might apply to our own lives. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and alive again. He was lost but is now found. So they began to celebrate. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fat and calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. What an incredible story. What a powerful story. And this morning, I want to look at each of the three characters that we see here in this famous parable of Jesus Christ. They each have a a lesson to teach us. The first of the characters that we find in our story this morning is the lost son, And the first lesson that Jesus conveys to us through the image of the lost son are the devastating consequences of our sin. We see in the lost son his rebellion and the devastating consequences that came with it. Now, we don't know the circumstances that led to this lost son desiring to leave home. Was he tired of his father's discipline? What, was he tired of working the fields and working with the livestock? Maybe he just wanted to go out and sow his wild oats. But whatever the reason, this son determined that he was going to set off on his own and do life on his own terms. He was tired of listening to his dad. He was tired of putting up with his brother. He didn't want anything more to do with his family. He was determined, I'm going to go out and live life my own way. You know, this was a very prideful young man. And in his pride, he rebelled against his father. And you know, friends, the reality is all sin in our life is ultimately the result of pride. All sin is the result of a prideful rebellion against our creator, God. Sin is essentially saying to our creator, God, I know better than you. And and, and here's how absurd it is. Our heavenly Father who made us, who gave us life, who's revealed truth to us, who's spoken the words that lead to life and life to the full, he showed us the direction to live. We say to him, our creator and maker, I know better than you. I'm going to live life the way I see fit. The way that I want to live it. And we reject the guidance of our heavenly Father. That's what sin is all about. It's prideful rebellion. And this young man goes to his father in his prideful rebellion and he says to his dad, Dad, I want my inheritance now. He's essentially saying to his father, Dad, I'm considering myself and you dead to me. Our relationship is done. I'm going to look at you from this point forward as if you were dead and in the grave and I want my inheritance now and I want to live my life the way I want to live it. Friends, this was the ultimate act of rejection. On top of that, for this young man to demand his inheritance, understand this, his inheritance would have equaled a third of his father's estate. It was the Jewish custom of this day to award the inheritance in in portions to the sons. And the older son would receive a two-third portion, while the younger son would receive a one-third portion. And so for this younger son to demand his inheritance would have equaled a third of his father's estate. But understand, this was more than just his dad going to the bank and making withdrawal. This meant his father would have had to sell a third of his property, a third of his livestock, a third of his land in order to fulfill this prodigal son's request. So understand what's happening here. Not only is this father losing his son, he's also losing a third of his land, his farm, his livelihood. And on top of that, he's also losing face in the community. Friends, can you imagine what a dishonor this was? What shame this father endured And his son coming to him saying, Dad, you are dead to me. Give me my inheritance. Sell off a third of your property. I want it now. And yet this father, in his great love, In his grace submits to his rebellious son's request. Jesus tells us the younger son then went off to a distant country. And he lived it up. He partied hard. He had the cash. He had throngs around him, following him, because he was spending it wildly and freely. He was the toast of the town. I mean, he was living it up. He was the man. But Jesus tells us in verse 13 that he eventually squandered his wealth in wild living. The Greek word there for wild living is a sotos. It means wasteful, unrestrained living, both morally and financially. This young man squandered all of his inheritance in unrestrained living, wasteful living. How sad it is to see somebody squander their life in wasteful living. I'm sure all of us have known people who have, like the prodigal, rebelled against God, rebelled against home and their family, and sought out to live life on their own terms. And they've ended up squandering it, wasting it. I think of so many of my friends that I grew up with in high school, Lives filled with promise. Lives filled with every privilege imaginable. Who grew up and squandered it all. Recklessly, wild living. Wasteful living. One of my best friends growing up. Grew up playing sports with him. He was a great student. Came from a great family. Good athlete. Good GPA. When we graduated from high school, he decided I'm going to move as far away from home as I can get. He was accepted to the University of Arizona. He lasted a semester before he decided that he wanted to drop out of school and just spend his life partying. Started smoking pot, joined a band, started traveling around. His life consisted of music, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. squandered every opportunity, every privilege he had. I ran into this friend of mine just a few years ago at a wedding, and I asked him, What are you doing right now? He was obviously a total burnout. He said he was living in the, a trailer behind a bar somewhere up in nowhere in the Pacific Northwest, tending bar during the day and smoking pot at night. That was his whole life. What a waste. How sad. See, friends, sin is always a waste. Every time we turn our back on our Heavenly Father and rebel against Him, it's a waste. Sin is wasted time, it's wasted talent, it's wasted potential. It's always a waste. John Piper tells a story in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. He tells the story of his father who was an evangelist. At one of his father's evangelistic meetings, an elderly man was seated out in the congregation and as John Piper's father preached a gospel message. This elderly man was weeping throughout the message. At the end of the message, he came forward desiring to pray and receive Christ as his Savior and Lord. And he confessed his sins to John Piper's father and he received Jesus as his Savior. But as he did, he just kept sobbing and sobbing and he repeated over and over again, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. Friends, how tragic to look back on an entire life wasted in the pursuit of sin. Wasted in rebellion against God. Don't waste your life, friends. Don't squander your life. There's nothing better than living for the Lord, following his will for our lives. Don't squander your life. I once heard someone say, life within and circumstances without often agree. In other words, if your heart is far from God, that reality is going to manifest itself in your life. And so now this young man, still in his rebellion, but now in dire straits, he ends up in the most unimaginable place for any good Jewish boy to be. He's working on a pig farm feeding swine. Now now understand this, friends. Pigs were considered unclean according to Old Testament Jewish law. So now what we have here is a young man with no home, no money, no friends, and he's completely defiled himself spiritually. Anyone listening to Jesus share this story would have recognized that this kid had hit rock bottom. You could not go any further down than where this young man had found himself. He was completely lost. See, friends, make no mistake about it. The life of sin may be fun for a season, but it always ends in ruin. It always costs more than you expect. See, sin never tells you the price tag up front. It waits till you buy into it, and then it brings the bill. And the bill is always more than you expect. Good news for us is that the story doesn't end here. In verses 17 and 18, we find the second lesson in our young prodigal. Jesus teaches us the nature of true repentance. In verse 17, we read, When he came to his senses, he realized, here I am feeding pigs. I have no money, no home, no friends. I'm feeding pigs, longing for their pig slop to eat, to feed myself. My father's servants have it better Maybe, maybe I can just go home and beg for a job as a servant in my father's house. But he came to his senses. Now understand this, friends. A lot of people stop right there. A lot of people come to their senses. They recognize their sin and their need for forgiveness and so they, they pray a sinner's prayer. They confess their sins, but then they never follow it up with any real change in their lifestyle or actions. See, there's a huge difference between coming to your senses and recognizing your spiritual depravity and making a conscious decision to turn away from it. And this young man, he had come to his senses, but that's not where he stopped. Verse 18, Jesus says, I, the young man tells us, I will set out and go back to my father. See, friends, this is what true repentance looks like. It's a a 180 degree change of course. It's a life where a remorseful heart manifests itself in action. It's coming to your senses, recognizing your need for a Savior, and then putting Jesus on the throne of your heart. It's making Him not only your Savior, but also the Lord, (coughs) the Lord of your life. How about you this morning? Do you need to repent? Have you been wandering in a distant land far from God? Recognizing that you're lost. The good news of the gospel, friends, if that's where you find yourself today, you can turn and you can go home. And this leads us to our second character in the story, the loving father the central figure in our parable this morning. In the portrait of the father, we see really the main character in Jesus' story, the loving father who never gave up hope that one day his lost son would return home. We, We see this vision of a father sitting on the rooftop of his home day after day, longing and hoping and praying that he'll just catch a glimpse of his wayward son heading down the path towards home. I know we have a lot of parents in this room this morning who know what it's like to be that parent longing for a wayward child, desperately praying just for a glimpse that you'll see them return home. I heard a story a few years ago about a father in Spain. He had had a falling out with his young son and his rebellious son had ran away from home. And this father spent weeks and months desperately searching all over Madrid looking for his lost son. He searched the alleys and the bars and the homeless shelters and he was desperate. He hung flyers up all over town. He was desperate for his son. In his desperation, the last thing he could think of, he said, I'm going to go to the the newspaper in Madrid and he decided to take out a classified ad. And he put a classified ad in the Madrid newspaper and the classified ad simply read, Paco, all is forgiven. Please come home. He said, I'm going to be at this cafe on the Central Square next Saturday at 1 p.m. Please come home. Love, Dad. That next weekend came around and on Saturday, the father went to the cafe at the central square in Madrid. And as he sat there waiting for his son, at 1 p.m., over a 100 Paco showed up, all longing for the love and forgiveness of their father. See, friends, we all long for the love of a father. We all hunger for his grace-filled embrace. And in our parable today, the parable of the loving Father, Jesus highlights for us the truth that we have a heavenly Father who loves us unconditionally. And he longs to lavish his grace upon any wayward children longing to come home. In verse 20, Jesus tells us that while this young man was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Now, now I want to highlight a few things in in this incredible vision of grace for us this morning. The the, the first thing is this father is, is watching expectantly for his son. He had never given up. He had believed in spite of all odds that one day his rebellious child would return home. And in the same way, friends, our Heavenly Father today, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you strayed, he longs and waits and watches for all of us to return home, to come back into his loving embrace. The father catches a glimpse of his son and, and he drops everything and he runs. He runs to meet his son. Now, now you need to understand this. In, in the ancient Near Eastern culture of Jesus' day, it was considered undignified for an elderly man to run. But yet, this, this elderly Jewish man, he throws all custom to the wind. He says, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care about my so-called dignity. I'm running to embrace my lost child. Some have speculated that the father's running to meet his son was actually to protect him. You see, you need to understand, friends, because of the sins this child had committed, because of his rebellion against his father, and because of the shame and dishonor he had brought against his family, he was worthy of being punished. By being stoned to death. And so when this father ran down the path, this father was running to protect his son before any friends, any neighbors dared lay a hand against my son and he throws his arms around him and he drapes his son in his love and he says, if you are going to stone my boy, you have to stone me first. What a picture of grace. What a picture of the grace that our Heavenly Father has lavished upon us. Not only does the Father welcome his wayward prodigal, but in an incredible picture of our redemption in Jesus Christ, the Father bestows upon him all the honor and rights and privileges of a beloved Son in good standing. The father says to his servants, quick, bring a robe. And the robe was a symbol of nobility. It was only worn by dignitaries and honored guests. And then the father says, quick, bring a ring. And the ring was a symbol of authority. It bore the family seal and it told everyone who saw it that this young man was a member of his father's house with all the corresponding rights and authority. And then the father said, hurry and bring the sandals, denoting privilege and status. You see, friends, only the servants walked around barefoot. The family wore the sandals, signifying their privilege and status. Friends, in the same way, when we enter into a relationship with God, he redeems us. He purchases us out of our slavery to sin. He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ, and he welcomes us home as beloved children. Friends, this is our loving Father. Do you know him today? Have you felt his embrace? If not, I can promise you, he's waiting. He's longing for you. He just wants you to come home. This is our loving Father. The third character we see in our story this morning is that of the livid brother. And in the picture of the older brother, we see the reality, the sad reality of a person caught up in self-righteousness and a spirit of condemnation. And here Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees those great spiritual leaders of Israel who couldn't tolerate the fact that Jesus welcomed sinners and had fellowship with them. I want to make two observations this morning about the self-righteous person that we see portrayed in the picture of the older brother. See, number one, understand this, friends. A self-righteous person is always a very bitter person. Have you ever noticed that? A person struggling with self righteousness is a very bitter person. Why is that? It's because the self righteous person always feels that God owes them something. God, don't you see how faithful I am? God, don't you see how how faithful I live for you? I mean, I go to church, I go to ABF. I go to Wednesday night Bible study, I bring my kids to Awana. Jesus, I I, I don't drink, I don't cheat on my wife, I I barely swear. Look at all I do for you, Jesus. And and Jesus, where is my goodies? Where are my blessings? And when the self-righteous person doesn't get what they think God owes them, they become very bitter and very angry. You see, they view their relationship with God more as a transaction than as a gift of grace. Friends, let me let you in on a little secret this morning. If you're struggling with self righteousness and bitterness, I need to tell you God doesn't owe you anything. You know that? God doesn't owe you anything this morning. But in his love and in his grace, he has already given you everything. He has given you life. He's given you salvation. He's forgiven you of your sin. He's given you hope for new life. He's lavished on you an eternal inheritance. Friends, Jesus has already given us everything that matters. The second thing I want to observe about the self-righteous person is that the self-righteous person is always a very judgmental person and and hypocritically so. Why is that? It's because it's always easier to point out the obvious sin in another person's life than it is to deal with the sin in our own hearts. And so the self-righteous person loves to point out other people's sin while ignoring their own. Did you guys hear about Jane? Jane? That high school girl, I heard she's sleeping with her boyfriend. Man, what a sinner. But I guess we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, have you seen her parents? You know her mom drinks, right? I saw her at the Northern. She had a glass of wine the other night with her burger. I mean, what else would you expect? See, the self-righteous person always loves to point out the, the shortcomings and the failings in others because it helps them feel better about themselves. It's always easier to compare sins. you know what I'm saying? Well, I'm not as bad a sinner as that person, so obviously I'm doing pretty good. But the reality is, is God doesn't grade on a curve, friends. God's standard is righteousness, it's holiness. The self-righteous person is always a hypocrite. Jesus talked about the Pharisees. He described them once as whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. On the outside, they looked great. They kept all the rules. They looked perfect on the outside, but inside they were full of dead bones. But notice here, friends, even here the loving father continues to demonstrate his grace. But this time to the self-righteous older brother. In verse 31, the father says, "'My son, everything I have is yours.'" In other words, don't you see this party is your party too? When I throw a feast, it's your feast too. When I arrange for a band and host a dance, it's so that you can dance too. When I kill a fattened calf and bring out the choice wine, it's for your enjoyment too. "'Son, everything I have is yours.'" Please, come in. Don't miss this party. But notice something, friends. Who is the lost one now? It's the judgmental, hypocritical older brother who refuses to celebrate the redemption of his wayward son and the amazing grace of his loving father. Friends, don't be the self-righteous older brother Don't miss out on the party because you're too proud to associate with prodigals. Remember, apart from the grace of God, you're no better than any of them. We're all prodigals, all desperate for the grace of our Heavenly Father. You know, it's one thing to hear a sermon about the prodigal son. It's another thing to hear from someone who's actually lived it. So this morning, I've invited my friend Ron Ingalls to come up and share a faith story with us about his experience living as a prodigal in God's welcome home. Thanks, brother.
1: Good morning. My name is Ron Ingalls, and I'm humbled to be here this morning to share my faith story. I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, on the edge of the city in a community, uh, in an area that was very much like Lindstrom. And I came from a family that's very much like a lot of families that go to church here. I guess I was a result of that upbringing in that uh, basically in high school, I was an All-American honor student. Um, I was a straight-A student, made 3.99 GPA, graduated number two in my graduating class of 620. I was in the National Honor Society. I was a letterman all the years I was in high school, and I was involved in all sorts of band activities. And during high school, I <clears throat> attended church on a fairly regular basis. In fact, if somebody would have asked me, Ron, do you believe in God or do you believe in Jesus, I would have re- uh, responded with a resounding Yes. But although this was the case, I still justified my sins. As a matter of fact, when I was a senior in high school, I started down a very dark and moral path. Um, I had a girlfriend when I was a senior in high school, and uh, that's when I lost my virginity. Of course, I justified that in that we were in love and we were going to get married, or at least so I thought. The justification of my sins only increased after high school, when I went to college. In fact, I dove headfirst in a party lifestyle there. I joined a fraternity right after high school, and I learned to drink fast and in quantities. I think I was drunk almost every weekend that first year in college, and I learned to chase the girls and catch them. Somehow I finished college, uh, but for about the next eight eight to nine years, this became my lifestyle, drinking, sex, occasional pot smoking. I was on top of the world in, in my eyes. I was young and invincible and living at large, baby. In my mind, I was the king of the world. But even though this was my new lifestyle, I still had faith in God. See, I hadn't rejected God or my faith. In fact, I would still attend church occasionally with my mom. In my mind, excuse me, somehow I justified all of my sins and my newfound secret lifestyle. I believe Proverbs 14.12 explains clearly where I was at. I felt I was basically a good person who wasn't hurting anyone with my lifestyle. See, I unconsciously felt God graded on a curve. Somehow I was gonna finish above the line. But what I wasn't aware of, at least at that time, was that even though I believed in Jesus, I didn't know him. In my 20s, I was living it up, heading further away from God as time passed. And I needed something to get my attention and turn me around. In May of 1985, Jesus gave me that gift. In May of 1985, I was struck with lightning. I don't mean that figuratively, I mean I was literally struck with lightning. I had moved to Minnesota from Kansas to take a job and since I enjoyed softball, I joined a team. It was while playing softball in a Saturday tournament at Lake Nokomis in Minneapolis that this event took place. It had been raining off and on all morning, but not enough to cancel the tournament. It started raining again, so our entire team took cover under a large tree to wait out the rain. And it was while waiting that the lightning struck. There are many details I could relate about the lightning strike itself, but let me just say I knew what was happening. When the lightning stopped, I fell to the ground on my back, and I thought I was going to die. I looked up through the trees and through the leaves, and the rain was coming down, and I said, Please, God, please, Jesus, not now. I don't want to die. But one of my teammates, though, who was standing two foot from me, he did die, and he, he was literally, the tree was like right here, and he was right here. He was leaning against it. He was in his 20s. He was attending the St. Paul Police Academy. I'd gone out drinking with him the night before. You know, he was much like me, and I was like him. But whereas the lightning glanced through my body it went directly through him, as a result, he was brain dead, and his parents had to make a decision the next day to to pull the plug. I obviously didn't die that day, but if I would have, my destiny would have been hell, because I didn't know Jesus. Instead, the God of the universe who controls every lightning bolt pursued me and he went to extraordinary means to get my attention. He showed me that death is real and that I wasn't invincible. So this incident started me on a journey. Um, I was no longer happy-go-lucky Invincible Ron. I became anxious and afraid and paranoid. I moved back to Wichita and tried to f- find peace and lots of different things. And as if God hadn't gotten my attention with that first death, death experience, no more than two months later when I was in Wichita, I was attending a benefit golf tournament, and a parachuter who was performing as part of the ceremony, he fell to his death at the edge of the golf course. And I remember saying to God, why, why God? Well, this death thing... That just doubled my paranoia and fearfulness, and Jesus let this go on in my life for about the next year and a half. I got struck with lightning in May of 1985, and I came to know Jesus in the fall of 86. I remember those final days well before I fell to my knees. Jesus had placed in my life a born-again believer, Jim. Jim had put me on, on an evangelistic list at his church, and they had been praying for me. Because of the Holy Spirit working in my life, Around October of 86, I felt this need to go to church. Maybe I could find what I was looking for there. Maybe I could find what Jim had. Probably for the first time in my life, really think back, I was truly open, finally, to what Jesus had to say to me. To make a long story short, on November the 1st of 1986, I became greatly convicted of something I had done. I was so convicted I thought that I had blown it. I was on my way to hell, and there was nothing I could do about it. I cried out to God for forgiveness. I pleaded that he would just give me another chance. I didn't understand yet, but I kept saying, kept saying to him, please forgive me through Jesus. And I told him, God, I just want to be your friend again. For the first time in my life, I felt the true separation between myself as a sinful person and him as a holy God. It was about a week later after attending church that I was invited to go to lunch with another brother, Brother Bill. He was a great guy, he'd he'd share with anybody, and I went to lunch with him, and Bill shared with me for two hours about Jesus, and I don't really remember much of anything he told me except, Ron, go home and read Romans chapters 1 through 8. So I went home, and I grabbed this little good news Bible, and probably for the first time in my life, I read the Bible, and I was ready to hear it. And remember, I had been saying to God, I just want to be be your friend again, and this is how he answered me in Romans 5.10. He said, well, we were God's enemies, we were God's enemies, but he made us his friends through the death of his son. And now that we are God's friends, how much more will we be saved by Christ's life? It's amazing. I was telling him I wanted to be his friend. He answered back that I could be his friend through Jesus. When I read that, I absolutely surrendered my life to Christ right then. I'd found what I was looking for, the true king of the world, and his name's Jesus. Jesus.
0: You know, when I hear stories like Ron's, it reminds me that God's still in the business of saving prodigals. And no matter where you find yourself in the story that we looked at this morning, maybe you're lost in a distant country, maybe you're longing for your father's embrace again, maybe you're wrestling with self-righteous judgmentalism and bitterness. But no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, your Heavenly Father loves you and just says, come home. I'm going to close in a word of prayer, and as I pray, I'm just going to give you an opportunity. Maybe you identify with that prodigal this morning. I'm just going to give you an opportunity to pray along with me and come back to the loving arms of your Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this powerful story this morning. We thank you for the the truth conveyed herein that you are our God of love, our Heavenly Father who just longs to lavish us with your love and your grace, And even though we don't deserve it, even though we've rebelled against you, you promise us that if we will turn to you and come home acknowledging our sin and our need for you, that you will welcome us with your loving arms. Thank you for doing that in my life, Lord. Thank you for doing that for my friend Ron, for so many of us here this morning. And if there's anybody here this morning who recognizes that they have strayed from you, they have rebelled against you, they've been living pridefully thinking they know better than you, I just pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would would convict them right now and would encourage them to, to turn and to trust in you today. Help them to see, Jesus, that you are our loving Father. You desire us to have a relationship with you. You will welcome us home. And I just pray that anyone here who needs to would just simply confess their sins. Father, forgive me. I want to receive your grace. I want to enter into a new relationship with you. And God, may they hear that precious whisper in their ear even this morning, welcome home, my son. Welcome home, my daughter. We thank you, God, for your great love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.